Welcome to the Buford Sermons Podcast, where we care about the things you care about. For more information or to donate to this ministry, please visit www.fbcbuford.org. Amen. Church, if you're thankful for Jesus' blood this morning, can you glorify his name? Amen. Amen. If you would take your seats this morning and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We will continue reading where Pastor Stephen started reading in verse 26, and then we will skip over to verse 32. Chapter 14, verse 26 reads like this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if, pos- if, the, pos- if the hour might pass him from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he had found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus, as he was speaking, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. May God add a blessing to the hearers and doers of his word. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. This is an excerpt from one of the, the famous poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called The Charge of the Light Brigade. It's based on the real event that happened on October 25th, 1854, during the Crimean War. Lord, Jorm, Lord James Cardigan charged his light brigade cal- cavalry into a valley against Russian guns, and they suffered 40% losses. This was a national tragedy, and Alfred Lord Tennyson read about it in the newspaper. He wrote this poem in memory of those who died, and it was published on December 9th, 1854. Now, what I want you to notice about the poem is that because it was written to memorialize those who died, did you notice that it leaves out a lot of probable truths? He says that no one was dismayed. He says that no one ever questioned why they were doing this. He says, there's not to make reply, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. And that's a wonderful sentiment. And these men were obviously very loyal 
and very brave, but do we not think that there was probably some confusion? Do we not think that they probably asked some questions? Why are we doing this? As their comrades began to, began to fall around them, do you not think that there was some regret associated with this? It was actually later found that the, the order was given by accident. Someone misread something that was said. That rhymed, I didn't even mean to. That someone misread something that was said and they charged by mistake. Now, do you think that there was no dismay associated with this event? Of course there was dismay. Of course there was confusion. But that's not how you write a memorial. This is how you write a memorial. They were brave. They never doubted. No one blundered. No, no, no one made reply. No one tried to reason why. They just did it because they were brave men. And certainly they were loyal. And certainly they were brave. But this is not the whole picture. The Gospel of Mark and the Bible itself is not like the charge of the Light Brigade. It's not like that. It is not a memorial written about Jesus. It is the true account of the Son of God's life on earth. Now, how do I know this? How do we know that the Bible is true? Well, there's myriad reasons that I could explain to you. But one reason that we can have confidence is that here in Mark 14, we see that Jesus is incredibly dismayed. If the disciples and those that followed Jesus were making up a story to present Jesus as something he was not, they would not have included this story, right? Why would you include this story if you're telling a lie? No, this account actually happened. That's the only explanation for why it would be included in the scriptures. And in this passage, Jesus is something that we would not expect. He's afraid. He's praying to be released from his mission. Also, his disciples who wrote these accounts are truthful about the fact that they actually failed Jesus by falling asleep three times. Again, why would you include that if you're making up a story? You wouldn't. So in this truthful account of Jesus, after the Lord's Supper and before his crucifixion, we find him praying under pressure. The place where this occurs is called Gethsemane, and it's a Hebrew word that means olive press. Luther read verse 26 that says that after the Lord's Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And at the Mount of Olives, they went to this specific place, this specific garden that's called Gethsemane or olive press. So what they would do, they still uh, grow olives on the Mount of Olives today, by the way. They would go to the Mount of Olives. Folks would pick the olives. They would bring them to the olive press. They were put into the press, and they were squeezed in order to make oil. They were pressed until oil came out of them. And what we see in this passage of Scripture is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the press, being pressed from all sides. He's in a spiritual pressure cooker. And what comes out of him isn't oil, it's blood and obedience. So what I want us to see is that when he was under pressure, he prayed. So I want us to look at his prayer of desperation. 
his prayer of desperation. In Mark 14, verse 32, I want to read it to you again. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed to, with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, this prayer of desperation helps us to understand two things. It helps us to understand why he was afraid and how he prayed. So let's look at those two things. Why he was afraid, first of all. Some say that Jesus was afraid of dying. Some say that he was afraid of the torture, that he knew the physical suffering that was coming his way, and he was terrified of it. But that doesn't really compute, because in Daniel chapter 3, some of you may remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they are told by King Nebuchadnezzar that they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace if they don't bow down and worship him. What do they say? Do they do something similar to what Jesus does here? No, they don't. They say... You can do to us whatever you want to do to us. We're not going to bow down to you because God will come to our aid. And even if he doesn't come to our aid, we're still not going to bow before you. So they stand. We see nothing like this. They stand completely, seemingly unfazed. In Acts chapter 7, we see the deacon Stephen who's being threatened with being stoned. And what does he do? Does he do something similar to what Jesus does in Mark chapter 14? No. He just keeps right on preaching. Just preaching and preaching and preaching. And he preaches so much about the gospel of Jesus Christ that they begin to pick up stones and they stone him to death. We don't see anything like what we see in Mark chapter 14 from Christ. So... Do we really think that Jesus is any less brave than any of these other men? Well, of course not. Of course, Jesus is every bit as brave as these men and more. He's the Son of God. So, why is Jesus in such agony? Why is Jesus in such pain? Why does he seem, why is he calling out to God, asking for a reprieve from his mission when these other men didn't? Well, it must mean that he's facing something that they did not face. Now, the word troubled here, when we go back and we see that it says that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled, that word actually means astonished. He was astonished, he was amazed. And if you're like me, you think, well, how can Jesus, who is the creator God, be astonished or amazed by anything? How could he possibly be astonished? Well, the answer is found in finding out what he's actually astonished by. So if it's not physical suffering, then what is it? Well... In verse number 36, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. So what is he afraid of? He is afraid of the cup. 
So we have to understand and figure out what is the cup that he's afraid of. Well, in Isaiah 51 and verse 17, we learn what it is. It says, Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Jesus is staggering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Is it because he's afraid of the physical suffering he's about to endure? No. It's because he is about to drink dry the cup of God's wrath. What does that mean when he speaks of the cup of God's wrath? Well, when he's on the cross, he utters the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was not a question he didn't know the answer to. It was a quotation of Psalm chapter 22. And yet he still says it. So, I want you to understand this. Jesus is brokenhearted, not because of the physical pain he's about to endure, but because of his separation from the Father that is about to occur. The only thing that could possibly astonish the creator of the universe is disunity with himself. The only thing he's never experienced is disunity within himself. See, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have lived in perfect unity for all of eternity. They are the only, he is the only uncreated being. And he has lived for eternity in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship, and perfect love within himself. They have never been separated. He has never been separated. Not they. He has never been separated from himself. And yet here, Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And what does that mean? It means he's about to take on eternity upon eternity upon eternity of the wrath of God. Each and every one of us who has sinned against the Lord of creation deserves an eternity separated from him. We deserve eternity drinking the cup of God's wrath. And yet Jesus is in the garden and he is staggering. Why? Because he is drinking every single solitary eternal cup of wrath. And he is brought to his knees and he is astonished because he's separated from his father. He's literally going through hell. And the weight of the sin of all of humanity combined with the wrath of God poured out on him through separation from God the Father is the source of Jesus' anguish. You see, Jesus, the reason Jesus staggers when these other men don't is because these other men, these other martyrs, they were experiencing the wrath of man, but they had the comfort of God. Jesus was experiencing not only the wrath of man, but also the wrath of God for each and every one of us. And so he staggers because he's facing something they didn't face. And in Luke 22 and verse 44, we read something astonishing. It says, And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is an actual thing that can happen. 
it is possible for a person to become so distressed and so torn up inside that their capillaries begin to swell and they begin to burst and that blood seeps out of our sweat glands. That is a very real thing that can happen. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. He's literally bleeding. And he says, I am in pain to the point of death. He's saying, I'm literally bleeding to death. And I want you to see that this is the view we must have of our sin. It must break our hearts. We must realize that it is our sin that is agonizing to the sinless Son of God in the garden. And it is our sin that will eventually put Him on the cross. Only when we see our sin for the atrocity it is, can we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in humility, turn from our sin, and trust in Him as Savior and Lord. So we see why he was afraid, but the second thing I want us to see is how he prayed. And the first thing we see is that he prays the scriptures. Mark chapter 14 and verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Yet in Mark 10, 27, he had already said, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He spoke it, He is the Word of God incarnate, and so anything he says is the Word of God. So he is literally quoting the Scriptures in his prayer. But he goes further. In Mark 14, 36, he goes on to say, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Even this quotation of take this cup from me is from the Scriptures. Because perhaps the idea that the Father could take the cup away comes from the same chapter in Isaiah that we already read just a few minutes ago. In Isaiah 51 and verse 22 it says, This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors. So, Jesus is praying the scriptures and he prays that God would take the cup away from him even though he knows that's not actually possible. See, Jesus knows that if he does not come, if he does not die, if he does not take the sin of the world onto himself, heaven is empty and hell is full. He knows that. He knows even as he prays these scriptures, even as he prays, God, I know that all things are possible with you. Could you take this cup from me? He is praying this knowing all along that that can't happen or humanity is doomed. So why does he pray the scriptures? Well, because praying the scriptures does two things. First, it reminds us of God's character. It reminds us that he is good. It reminds us that he's faithful. He's eternal. He is love. He is all-powerful. It reminds us of his character. But the second thing is that praying the scriptures does is to remind us that his plan is bigger than us. Now, it wasn't bigger than Jesus, by the way. Jesus is the plan of God. But he is showing us a blueprint for how we pray in times of desperation. He's showing us that 
yes, we should pray the scriptures, and yes, we believe in the character of God, but we also recognize that our perspective on life is one-sided, our side. We only see God's plan from the perspective of our finite understanding, but God sees the whole thing. And we got to understand that his desire is not just for you and me to trust him, but for all to trust him. And sometimes our mission within that plan is not one that excites us or makes us comfortable. But accepting that mission is the only thing that will bring us true joy and give us real purpose. You say, Jesus isn't very joyful here. No, he isn't. But he will be for all eternity. And sometimes the mission that God calls us to doesn't bring us very much joy in the moment. But we'll have it for all of eternity because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He prays the scriptures, he prays also in submission. He says, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays hard. Jesus prays the scriptures. He asks for deliverance. But then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. He submits to the plan of God, even though it's not going to bring, yield the results that he wants in the moment. Now, I've heard and have been told many times that to pray this way is a cop-out. That you shouldn't add a qualifier to the end of your prayers. Many well-meaning people will say that if you just name what you want and claim what you want, then, uh, then God will do it. You kind of back God into a corner where he's got to do what your little finite brain thinks is the right thing. That's what people will say. So uh, they'll go further to say that if you pray for something and it doesn't happen, then you must not have had enough faith. I just want to ask that person, does Jesus not have enough faith? Does Jesus not have enough faith? Because he prayed, God, would you remove this from me? But then he goes on to say, yet not what I will, but what you will. If the Son of God will pray, not what I will, but what you will, then we should do the same. And to pray any other way is just arrogance masquerading as superior faith. Now, let me be clear to say that I'm not comparing us to Jesus. Nor am I saying that Jesus did not know what was going to happen because we know, and we're going to see over the, next, over the course of the next few weeks, that Jesus was absolutely in control of this timeline. This is a specific situation that is particular to Jesus, but I do believe that he gives us a blueprint here for how to pray in desperation. When we pray in desperation for deliverance or healing or whatever we're praying for, we pray with one single perspective that is our own. We know what we would like to see happen, but we can't see the whole picture. Therefore, we must pray with the perspective that, of course, we're free to ask for what we want to happen, and we should have confidence that God is good and that he can do whatever it is that we're asking, and yet we must do so in full submission to his will. And it's only if we pray in that way that we'll be at peace with his answer, no matter what it is. I got to rush to get through these last two. I promise they're shorter than the first point, okay? 
So we've seen the, that he prays his prayer of desperation. But the second thing that we see is a prayer of preparation. Now what I mean by prayer of preparation? Well, Peter, James, and John had previously bragged about their commitment to Christ. But here, they can't even obey the simplest command. Mark chapter 14, verse 28, is talking about Peter. It's just before this in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Do you sense the bravado here? Mark chapter 10, a little bit further back, verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Be careful what you sign up for. See, these men that displayed such confidence before can't even stay awake now. They did not feel the desperation that Jesus felt, so what did they do? They failed to pray, therefore they failed to obey. This is corny. They hit the hay. Somebody needs to put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> they failed to pray, and therefore, they failed to obey. Do you remember, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked out of Mark chapter 13. And do you remember in that great foreshadowing chapter what Jesus told the disciples? He said in Mark 13, verse 36, He said, If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. But in Mark 14, 37, we see them doing the opposite. It says, then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So do you see the principle that Jesus is teaching here? If you fail to, obey, if you fail to pray, you will not obey. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, there's a constant battle between those of us who have turned from our sin and put our faith in Christ. There's a constant battle between our spirit that's been regenerated, that has been made new, that is a new creation, and our body of flesh that's still susceptible and vulnerable to the sin-cursed world. And every day is a battle between those two things. And our job is to reach into the into the treasury of power that we've been given through the Holy Spirit living inside of us to take control of our flesh and live for Christ. That's our charge. 
But if you don't pray, your flesh will win every time. Did you notice what Jesus called Peter? He called him Simon. Now, Simon was his old name. He became Peter when he confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. In Matthew 16, when Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was in that moment that Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter. And yet here he is, and he calls Peter Simon again. It's because Jesus always called Peter by his old name when he was acting like his old self. And I wonder what he has to call me most of the time. He says, Peter, you're letting Simon, your old self, win because you won't pray. Have you ever been in a season of life where you're trying to live for Christ without being in his word? Without praying? Are you in that season right now? I can tell you that there have been many times that I've done this even as a pastor. To my shame, there have been many times that I've tried to do ministry under my own strength. That I've tried to decide what's best and what's right in leading the church of God without being in the Word of God. And here's what I can promise you I've learned. I am never the man of God I could be when I'm not the man of prayer that I should be. I'm never the man of God that I could be if I'm not the man of prayer that I should be. We will not be obedient to Christ. We will not become more like Christ. We will not be the men and women God has called us to be. We will not be ready when temptation and persecution comes if we do not prepare through prayer. So whether you're in desperation or whether you're in preparation for the desperation that is to come in your life, and oh, trust me, it is coming. We must always be people of prayer. Jesus says, watch and pray, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, you probably know this verse. It says, rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing about praying in preparation. Here's the thing about praying when things aren't all bad, when you're not in a desperate situation. Here's the thing about prayer and preparation. It will always lead you to desperation. The more I pray, this is what I mean by that, the more I pray, the more I realize my dependence on God for literally every moment. The more I pray, the more desperate I become for His presence and for His love. But when we fail to pray, we fall asleep. We become more selfish and we become oblivious to our own spiritual stagnation. So we see the prayer of desperation, the prayer of preparation, but the last thing we see is the prayer of reconciliation. Peter is about to find out what happens when we do not watch and pray in preparation for temptation. He's about to find out. He thinks he's above it. He thinks he can fall asleep. And so do James and John. But he's about to find out what happens when we don't watch and pray. Because just a little bit later, after Peter follows Jesus and the ones who arrest him, he's standing around a fire watching what's happening. And someone looks at Peter and says, Hey, you're one of the followers of Jesus. And we see this in Luke chapter 22 and verse 60. 
says, Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, Jesus had been telling Peter that he would deny him. And Peter had been told that he was not as committed as he thought he was. That his commitment was out of pride and not undying love. He had heard all these things, but it was in the moment with the Son of God staring him in the face that Peter was no longer puffed up. He was no longer presumptuous about his own level of commitment, and he wept bitterly because he finally saw himself for what he was, broken. And what I want you to get this morning is this. There is a difference between a truth you know and a truth that's staring you in the face. You may know in theory that all are sinners. But just as Pastor Stephen talked about last week, until you come to grips with your own sin to the point that you weep bitterly, not because of your own personal circumstances, but because you're brokenhearted that you broke the heart of God, until you feel that way over your sin, you can never be reconciled to God. Because you can't come to God in any other way than completely and totally humble. Believer, you may know that you should trust God. But until we lay everything down and say, it's all yours, Lord. We've been told all our lives, oh, we should trust God, we should trust God, we should trust God. And we say we trust God, but we really trust in how much money we've got in our bank account. And we say we trust God, but we really trust in our relationships that make us comfortable and make us feel grounded. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a healthy bank account, and there's nothing wrong with having healthy relationships. But if you trust in those things, they will let you down every single solitary time. It's not until the truth stares us in the face that actually we're saying we trust God, but we really don't. We're really trusting in the things. And we're not trusting in the giver. And it's when we realize that about ourselves and we weep bitterly over our disobedience and we weep weep bitterly over our lack of trust that we can come in humility to the Father and say, Lord, I am sorry, I am broken, but I offer myself to you. I thought to myself as I read Luke chapter 22, Can you imagine those eyes? The all-knowing eyes of Jesus staring a hole through you? Can you imagine what it must have felt like to deny Jesus and immediately stare him in the face? Can you imagine that? And then I realized that I have experienced that. It was at the moment of my salvation when he got in my face and showed me how sinful I was and how saving he is.
if you've had an encounter with Christ, you weep bitterly. But when you pray the prayer of reconciliation, trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, He will lift you up. In Romans 10 and verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So, in closing, are you in a time of desperation? Pray the scriptures. Pray in submission. Are you in a time of spiritual laziness? Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And truthfully, most importantly, are you lost and without hope this morning? Has there never been a time that you really stared Christ in the face and wept bitterly over your sin and disobedience? If there's never been a time when you've repented of your sin like that, turned from your sin and put your total trust in Jesus Christ, then you're lost and without hope. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So, there's a few ways to respond this morning. The team's going to come up in just a second. We're going to pray this, or we're going to sing this last song of response. And here's the truth. Every one of us is in one of those three categories. There's not a person here that can say, well, I'm not in one of those three categories. You either need to be reconciled to God or you have been reconciled to God and you're in a desperate situation or you've been reconciled to God and you will be in a desperate situation. However you need to pray in response to God this morning, let's do it. Let's become more unified as a body of Christ and the only way for us to do that is through prayer with hearts aligned in one accord pursuing Jesus Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to start to sing. If you need to come down to the front and pray, you can certainly do that. If you need to meet with one of our pastors, Pastor Wayne will be in the hallway. You can go meet with him. Or you can text the word Buford Info to 97000 and respond however you need to respond this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in times of distress, in times of desperation... You've given us a blueprint for how we reach out, how we pray, how we find the power that comes only through the Holy Spirit of God for those who have trusted in you as Savior and Lord. Lord, we thank you most of all for that prayer of reconciliation, for Jesus taking the cup of wrath for us on the cross so that when we respond to him in faith, we can be saved. We thank you for your goodness this morning. In Jesus' name. We hope that you have been blessed and challenged by this message. If you have questions, prayer requests, or want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please check us out at fbcbuford.org.